Silencio wrote, Welcome to Crown the Bay, uh, short stories and poetry for December 22nd, 2023. I'm Terrence O'Donnell, your digital scalet. Come sit with me in a warm chair with a cup of something warm, a handful of Christmas cookies or a candy cane or two, while I read you some more fictional stories and poems this week. I have I got nine short stories and poems for you. Some are Christmassy, some not so much. I got another chapter from Robert J. Longfrey's new book, uh, Sanctuary. And lastly, I got a Christmas poem that I found from a Facebook writer in one of my pagan groups. So I hope you're in a warm, comfortable seat because this episode may run a little overlong because of all the extra stories and Christmas stories and other poems and stuff I have. There's nothing better than sitting somewhere warm to listen to some good stories and poems. And I hope I can take your mind off your troubles for just a little while. So let me start off with my first story. And I'm going to lead off this week with Robert J. Longpray's Sanctuary chapter. Sanctuary, first morning at the cabin, chapter four. And some homeless people in need of a safe place. Carrie woke with the pre-dawn light just beginning to touch the sky. He loved this time of day. It didn't matter he hadn't been able to have many hours of sleep. His body demanded he get up and begin the day. Leaving his bedroom, Carrie wandered into the kitchen area in hopes of finding coffee already brewing. No coffee. Since he didn't want to make any noise to wake any of the others in the house, he settled for a glass of juice from the refrigerator. Taking the juice into the family room, he walked up to the large bank of windows to stare out at the approach of dawn. He saw his father and two other men sitting on benches by the small lake, drinking either coffee or tea. Though it was late September, it appeared to be warm as all three men appeared to be wearing very little. Not willing to take a chance, Carrie grabbed a light wind jacket before heading out outside to have coffee with his father. Morning, Dad, Uncle Carl, Uncle Ben. Though the two men weren't really his uncles, Carrie had grown up calling him uncles. His father was all about respect for others and taught Carrie and his sister to give respect whenever possible, even when it came to enemies. Morning, son, Dorian spoke while giving his son a smile. I suppose you came out for the coffee, not to hang out with us old fogies. Help yourself. Morning, Caraways, Uncle Carl said with the slightest nod of respect. Ben simply nodded his head in agreement with Carl. Ben was a man of few words. Carrie's full name was Caraways, though no one used it. None of the identity records mentioned his full name. Caraways was a Mohawk name that meant a new way of doing things. Carl and Ben were both indigenous. Carl was of Mohawk descent, and Ben had Ashinaabe heritage. Carl helped himself to a mug of strong coffee, a bit too strong for his taste. Still, it was better than no coffee. After sipping it slowly, listening to the silence that was punctuated with the crackling of the logs on the fire, Carrie decided it was time to find out a few answers. Dad? Yes? When did you find time to build the disinfection chambers? They weren't here two and a half months ago. Carl and Ben took care of that job. All I had to do was provide the money and the plan. They took care of the rest, with help, of course. What all the other people in the cabin? Who are they? I guess you could say they are homeless people in need of a safe place. We have the space and the resources. Carrie nodded in agreement. His father was right. Their family had the resources to help others. However, he wasn't so sure about having so many strangers living in the same place, especially so far from civilization. Seeing his father turn to study the fading embers on the fire, Carrie decided it was time to head back to the cabin. 
He wanted to be there when Ann woke up. I'm heading back to the cabin for some breakfast, Carrie said as an explanation for his leaving a small circle. The three men simply nodded. Carrie heard Ben utter a rare few words. Growing boy needs to eat. Morning, Ma, Carrie said in greetings as he entered the kitchen. Do you know if Ann is up? No, I think she's still sleeping. Now don't go waking her up. She has to be exhausted. It's not easy having to leave home without your parents, worrying about them in a the hospital. Are you hungry? Carrie laughed at her final comment. He was always hungry. Both of his parents constantly teased him about having a hollow leg. There's fresh bread on the cupboard. It's not homemade like usual, but it is healthy. Make yourself some toast. There's also fruit, peanut butter, a selection of jams and cereals to choose from. We have to thank Ben and Carl for all the provisions. Your dad was in a hurry yesterday to get here. Toast sounds good, Mom. Do you want me to make some toast for you as well? No, I'll wait till your dad comes in and have breakfast with him. Who's preparing breakfast for all the others? Your father said he will take care of it. I expect him to be here in a few more minutes. If you want, you can help him. It's supposed to be fairly basic, toast and cereal for the most part. Carrie made his toast, which he covered in peanut butter topped with sliced bananas. It was the same breakfast he usually ate before going to school. With the thought of school, Carrie realized that he wouldn't be going to school after breakfast, nor any time soon, very soon. A frown appeared on his face with those thoughts racing through his mind. Mom, do you know how long we're going to be here? I don't know. It could be weeks or even months, depending on when the pandemic has resolved. What about school? Oh, you're not getting out of school, and don't worry. Your father has set up a couple of rooms on the second level as distance learning centers. Don't ask me how, but he has even set up Wi-Fi in the cabin. Online learning will ensure that all you kids will continue to get your education. Carrie took in the information and felt a sense of relief. It was his final year of high school. He still needed four credits to graduate, classes that could easily be done online. You better go get Ann up so she can be ready for breakfast and for registering for online studies. Where's her room, Mom? Two rooms to the right of yours. Your sister's room was between your room and Ann's. Make sure to wake Leslie up as well. She would sleep until mid-morning every day if she could get away with it. Waking her up was a chore he was charged with ever since he started going to school. Leslie had just started grade six at the new middle school back home. If anything, it was getting harder to get her ready for school on time. Carrie stopped by Leslie's door and knocked loudly, calling out, calling out her name. Usually it took several minutes of knocking for a muffled go away to be spoken. Surprisingly, he only knocked twice before she opened the door wearing a smile. Is breakfast ready? Carrie couldn't believe his eyes. Sister was up and dressed and smiling. He turned as he heard the door to the next room open. Anne had heard his knocking and came out to see what was going on. Seeing Carrie, she gave a sigh of relief. I wonder if I can call my mom, were her first words. My mother says that we have internet, so I don't see how that should be a problem, Carrie replied, glad that he had something positive to say. Without thinking, he approached her and embraced her in a hug. More of a big brother hug than anything else. She also said the two of you should come down to breakfast. It was only after he spoke those last words when he realized Anne had only a thin nightdress on, a thought which instantly made him blush. Anne saw his reaction, looked down to notice her dress was almost see-through. She immediately rushed back into her room, closing the door behind her, while telling both Carrie and Jessie to wait for her to change. Less than three minutes later, she emerged to face the challenges of a new day in a strange place. My next story is a short science fiction story. And it's from David Pahor. 
As a maker, to speak, a fortunate linguist place is in chains. The rock that dropped from the sky near that remote village in the foothills of Southern Peaks was not a rock. Had we known that when our satellites detected the location of its impact, we would have just nuked it. But hindsight is a bare mistress, and it probably would have not have worked anyway. We landed in the large cargo flyer of the university's geological department, accompanied by two board constables and a patrol skipper. Approaching the smoldering earth around the crater, they were the first to die, their unprotected skin blackening before, in a matter of seconds, a crackling heat transformed their stiffened bodies into charred mannequins. A wedge slate slab slid off of an exposed side of the steaming, half-buried metallic oblong to fall ponderously into the disturbed, icky soil, revealing a form in the silvered orifice. It spoke in the authentic language of the makers, and the fleeing others never stood a chance. I was the only one who understood it and fell instantly to my knees avowing subservience. It now keeps me on a chain, calls me its public relations manager as it roams its former wildlife planet, house cleaning. I dread the day it loses its sense of humor. My next is a poem. And she's labeled this erotic poetry. I guess it is to an extent. As from Mariana Bosarova, Bulgaria. I took a sip of you, but I am still thirsty. A pure thirst for love. You are my storm and softly took my soul. I hardly can a single breath now take. I am approaching you and I have no control. I may be dreaming, it's early to wake. I'm thirstier since I took a sip of you. You are my chalice of a sacrificial pyre. I am painting a dream and it is now the clue an endless kiss that ignites again your fire. You are my magic, and I am now reborn to sink into your loving arms and sigh, and I am here to stay with you till morn. This pure thirst for love will never die. Now I've got a kind of a funny story. It's a science fiction story. And it's entitled, I Did Something Bad Yesterday, and I Don't Know How I Feel About It, by Zelin Sam. Content warning, graphic violence and disturbing imagery. I did something bad at work yesterday. I've been debating whether to share this story online, but it's something that I need to get off my chest. I wish that we had been allowed to continue working from home. Then none of this would have happened. About three months ago, the company I work for went through a merger and one of the first changes implemented by the new owner was to abolish remote working. Most of us have been working from home since the very first COVID lockdown, so it's safe to say that the changes were not very welcomed. Personally, I don't know why they want us back in the office. It's not as if the work cannot be done at home, as we have been doing fine for the past three years. I feel that most companies in our country are rather backward in the sense that they need their employees to be in the office. If we work from home most of the time, they assume we watch Netflix the whole day, which of course, not true. Whether you work in the office or at home, you need to get your work done on time. Besides, I find myself being more productive and efficient at home. My co-workers used to joke about me having an extra pair of limbs when we work from home because I could finish my tasks very quickly. The distance between my home and workplace isn't very far, but the commute takes more than an hour each way. For me, it's time that could be spent on something more valuable than being stuck in traffic. Also, rush hour traffic really stresses me out. I usually listen to music in the car, 
but even with my favorite songs playing, it's hard to relax when angry drivers get a little too close for comfort. Have you ever noticed that almost everyone behind the steering wheel behaves like a murder psychopath? I also hate dressing up for the office. Once you start working in your pajamas, it's very hard to get back to dressing into work attire every morning. My clothes feel a little bit too tight each morning. Maybe I should lay off the salt. Shoes are another problem. At home, I go barefoot, which is typical in our culture. Frankly, I hate wearing shoes, but obviously I can't go barefoot outside, let alone in the office. It's quite impossible for me to find a good pair of shoes. They are always either too tight or too loose. Even the ones that fit perfectly in the store give me problems after a day or two. But seriously, does anyone not have a problem with finding shoes that fit perfectly? I mean, even Cinderella had problems with her glass slippers. The fairy tale is complete hogwash. If they fit her perfectly, why did they slip off? So, as you can tell, a typical weekday morning usually starts off with a drag and gets worse when I reach the office area. Our office building is about a 10-minute walk from the car park which is in another building, so that means you have to walk into the hot sun. Usually I'm all hot and sweaty by the time I reach the office, and not in a sexy way, mind you. Anyone who has ever sweated like a pig while wearing a bra can probably empathize with the uncomfortable way it sticks to your skin. But that's not the worst part. That's when it starts to freeze like cold packs as you sit in your cold air-conditioned office. Once you're at the office, you're supposed to start work immediately, even if you are early. Most of my co-workers loiter at the nearby 7-Eleven, but that's risky because if you're late, you have to make up for the time. The rules are such that for every minute late, you have to make it up by an hour. So if you're one minute late, you have to compensate for one hour. If it's two minutes, it's two hours, and so on and so forth. This is the reason why most of us work until midnight and on weekends, too. I have a feeling that the company's clock-in system is rigged because for the past 10 years, I've never been punctual or at least my attendance has never been recorded as punctual. I swear I reach the office at least five seconds early every morning. As soon as I set up my laptop system, we use two monitor screens, I usually have breakfast at my desk while pretending to work. Yesterday was an exception. It was an unusually hot day. I nearly died from heat exhaustion. As I was eating my second burger, one of my idiotic co-workers increased the temperatures to 30 degrees C, which was ridiculous as was warmer than the temperature outside. I snatched the remote control out of her hands, but the stupid thing ran out of battery right after that. So we were stuck at that awful temperature, and I felt like I was being cooked alive. I knew that some of my co-workers hid in the server room for the air conditioning, but I wouldn't risk breaking company rules. So I went to the pantry instead, kept myself cool by standing in front of the fridge with its door open for about an hour or so. After a while, it was really tiring, so I pulled up a chair and sat in front of it. I know my co-workers don't like it when I do that. I think they are just being discriminatory because of my weight. Obviously, I won't break the chair, although the chairs in the pantry are pretty small. If only they could see my true form. Maybe they would be more sympathetic, I, I guess. I mean, it's hard to wear all these stuffy human clothes and shoes on top of your human avatar bodysuit. My tentacles feel squished. And honestly, I get cramps when I'm home after a long day in the office. I used to have a partner who would give me a massage before bedtime. But let's just say that he isn't around to do that anymore. That might have something to do with what I did, but that's another story. So anyway, my co-worker Emma's been getting on my nerves all week. She loves sucking up to the boss. It's so obvious. 
Oh, perhaps I should have used the past tense to describe her actions. Yeah, that's right. She's dead now. I seriously couldn't stand her going on and on about how I should put my fat ass in one of those tiny chairs in the pantry. I mean, come on. Enough with the body shaming. I was already having a very bad day. So, I rip off the lower part of my human bodysuit along with my luxurious pantyhose and smash her stupid head open with one of my tentacles. After that, I slurped her tiny brain with a silicone straw. Yes, you read that right. She actually had a brain. I was surprised by that too. Luckily, I had my really cool, resealable and reusable silicone straw with me. Actually, I carry it all the time in my left shoe. It's really handy since the state I live in has banned plastic straws. It's really easy to clean too, as you can open up the straw to clean the inside surface. I'll leave a link at the end of this article. I love our environmentally friendly products as they somewhat offset the damage done by humans to the planet. In my opinion, humans are the biggest pests in the world. And now we've reached the confession part. As I mentioned, I did something bad. Please keep this a secret as I might lose my job if anybody finds out. After discarding Emma's brainless body in the trash can where she rightfully belonged, I went to the pantry and destroyed all the tiny chairs by swinging them out the window. It took me less than five minutes as I used all eight of my pastel tentacles. That would teach them for not letting us continue working from home. She goes on here about how she was inspired by somebody. I'll let you read that if you want to read the story. My next story is called The Ageless Mrs. Nibbets. She's always been there, waiting on her stoop by A.A. McRae, published in short stories. This is a short, this is a real short story, a couple minutes. Mrs. Nibbets lives across the street. She's lived there as long as I can remember. I don't even live here anymore. I lost another job today. They said it was because I can't keep up. Somehow I've become too old. And yet, here's Mrs. Nibbets with her Afghan and walking stick. It's like she doesn't age, or her age has always just been the same. I'm here to pick up the kids. The grandparents take them twice a week. I can hear them inside, but I hesitate to turn them off. Mrs. Nibbets is out on her front stoop, stirring her cuppa, and holding a faded book like every other day I've seen her since my memories began. I don't even think the book has changed. It looks like the same book, a tattered copy of Aesop's Fables. It looks ancient. Hello, boy. She always calls me boy, almost as if she's read Peter Pan and Wendy too many times. Hello, Mrs. Nibbets, I say. You don't visit me much. I'm just here to pick up the kids. Remember Max and Priscilla, Mrs. Nibbets? We don't have much time, boy. I don't have much time. She licks a finger and thrusts it upwards as if she's measuring time in the wind. Don't forget, boy. No need to be forlorn, Mrs. Nibbets. We all care for you. The neighborhood won't be the same without you. We'll see each other at the community potluck this week. We can talk more then, all right? It's okay, boy. It's okay. I forgive you. She turns to pick up her cup and throws the tip of tea out over her driveway. Then she painstakingly crouches down and gathers the tea leaves, cradling them in her hands. I forgive you, I hear her whisper to the tea leaves as she turns away. I get to feel that she hasn't been talking to me at all. My next story is from Lark Morrigan. It's fairy tale. It's a little lengthy, so just hang tight. The Skylark, the Pendant, and the Lute, an original fairy tale, published in The Scribe. As Adrian passed by the Royal Pavilion, 
she heard the strumming of a lute. Though it was poorly played and the strings weren't resonating like they should, she couldn't help but daydream about owning such an instrument herself. Suddenly, she heard a young lady shout with annoyance. The lute was tossed aside, narrowly missing the edge of the lake. Upon realizing who that young lady was, Adern muttered under her breath, Spoiled princess! Adern couldn't fathom such waste and total lack of regard for the beautiful things in life. Adern was a lowly wanderer who spent her days walking through towns surrounding the king's palace. Occasionally, she would stray into the forest, but was hesitant to travel beyond the territory she's familiar with. The father died when she was very young, so she never got to know him. When her mother died a year ago from an untreated illness, she felt like her life had lost all meaning. How will I survive if I'm nothing but a poor orphan girl? I'm utterly useless for work and unsuitable for marriage. I have no special gifts to think of. Here I will spend the rest of my days wandering aimlessly, seeking out scraps of food until my spirit languishes and coldness disease to overtake my body. Just before her death, her mother gave her a bird pendant that was fashioned out of opal. It seemed very out of place with the rest of their tattered and meager belongings. This pendant has been in the family for generations. It is the only item that you must never part with. It will be important to you someday. Unfortunately, my mother ex never explained the mysterious reason behind it. But you must remember that this is something you can never sell, no matter how desperate you are. Ader nodded, but said not a word, for she was too paralyzed by grief. I love you. I love you, Mama, she whispered. She held on to her mother's lifeless hand and wept. Adrian picked up the lute brushed dirt and grass off the surface, and began walking towards the forest. Once she was out of sight, she strummed a single note. She admired the richness of the sound. What if I tried playing a tune I remember from so long ago, from a distant childhood dream that has brought comfort on the hardest days? She closed her eyes and began playing the lovely yet somber melody that her mother sang to her as a child. Strangely, the notes flowed effortlessly from her fingertips, and in that moment, she felt a surge of power she had never felt before, as if she were touched by a spirit, but she couldn't understand why. Unbeknownst to her, across three rivers and seven forests to the west, an enchanted skylark awoke from her sleep and began singing the same melody. Up in the tower of the royal palace, a formidable woman in a long cloak stared at her glass orb that radiated with dark energy. The enchanted skylark had woken from her long slumber, and the orphan had found the loot and was in possession of the pendant. The keys to the prophecy were in place. She opened an ancient text, and after she whispered some incantations, the smoke revealed that Adrian was the only one alive who could make the prophecy come true. She was the sole descendant of the last good prophetess, who was executed seven generations ago, and this execution commenced the kingdom's slow plunge into darkness. A child of the seventh generation will be the key to saving the kingdom from total darkness, decadence, and decay. If she finds the enchanted skylark, keeps the opal bird pendant, and plays the sacred tune on the king's lute. Though this sorceress was well aware of the laws of magic, she thought she could twist fate with her own hands with her schemes, and there was one obvious solution. Tomorrow I will make sure that she parts with that pendant for good. Adrian was getting desperate. She had pawned off almost all of her family's possessions, sold the house, and subsisted on the bare minimum amount of food she needed to survive for the past year. Although she knew this day was coming, 
and mentally prepared herself for the arrival and the heavy realization that she had absolutely no money left wasn't any easier. She looked at the opal bird pendant with such sadness. Mother, I am hungry, I am weak, and I am beyond weary. I have no means of survival. Is the pendant really worth keeping when I am close to death? A beautiful jewel will be of no use to me during these difficult times. She hesitated no more and began running over to the market. The sorceress was disguised as a merchant. She spotted Adern asking several other merchants about selling the pendant. She overheard what some of them were willing to pay. She chuckled to herself. Such amateurs. They really do not know the worth of things like I do. Adern approached her and the sorceress carefully concealed the guile in her own eyes. I'm selling a rare and precious pendant. It is no longer of use to me. Sorcerer's lips curves into a smile, but the warmth did not reach her eyes. Ader was too tired to notice. I will offer you a sum that you can subsist on for the next decade of your life, and I will give you another pendant like the one you own, so this exchange won't feel like a sacrifice at all. She dangled a pendant that looked no different from the original. But unlike the original, it wasn't crafted using the waters from the Fey's silver stream or opal from the moon's realm. Adrian's eyes widened, and the sorceress tried her best to hide their glee. The prophetess descendant was more gullible and weaker than she had thought. They quickly made the exchange. Adrian thanked her and went on her way. The sorceress clenched her fists around the opal pendant. At last, the prophecy will not come to pass. Later that night, Adrian couldn't help but feel uneasy. Though she had found herself a nice home and some good food to eat, she wondered if there was any truth to what her mother said. But she couldn't imagine why a pendant would be more important than food and shelter. She stared at the pendant the merchant lady gave to her. It's just a replaceable piece of jewelry, she reassured herself. See, I was able to get another one just like it, and was able to buy a house, so I don't freeze at night. Surely it was worth it. But as soon as the words left her lips... The fire went out and was replaced by an unfathomable cold chill. None of the windows or doors were open. Adern, my last descendant, you have no idea what you've just done. I'm sorry, I didn't know how valuable this was. The laws of otherworldly realms forbid me to speak and meddle in affairs of humankind, but I was granted permission to speak with you briefly, for the prophecy must be fulfilled, and there is no time to waste. Adern froze and braced herself for admonishment. I'm very sorry. I should have listened to my mother. I hope there's a way I can fix my mistake. There is, child, but the chances of getting the pendant back are slim. You see, you didn't sell it to an ordinary merchant. You sold it to our enemy, the sorceress, who is the corrupt king's confidant. That will make it much harder to retrieve, but not entirely impossible if you think of a way to outwit her. Next, you will need to journey across three rivers and seven forests to the west, in order to find the enchanted Skylark. Bring her back to the royal palace. Finally, it is imperative that you do not lose the king's loot, for it has powers that he himself does not know of. Play the tune you've always remembered from your childhood days, for it is the most sacred one of the land. These three things in your possession will lift the weighty curse. Then the whole kingdom will be free from darkness and corruption, and peace will be restored to the land. More will be revealed when the time is right, but you must make haste. Ader nodded solemnly. I will get the pendant back, she said, hiding her fears about not being able to keep this promise. Good, and remember the words of this prophecy. Keep it close to your heart and never waver. You are more important than you know. The voice spoke no more, 
and Ada was left speechless and unbearably cold. She angrily tossed the false pendant into the ashes and stepped out into the night, uncertain but more determined than ever to see this journey through. I'm hoping that there's another part of this. Now I've got a Christmas poem for you. Actually, the, my next three pieces are all about Christmas. It's a Christmas poem from my friend Mitch. It's called His Wish, What the Snowman Knows. Published in Subscriber's Nook. In Scriber's Nook, I'm sorry. I watch the lights and holiday trees, looking through windows in front yards. Fireplaces crackle, carols fill the air, mommies laugh as they write Christmas cards. But the magic of the season isn't in stockings on the walls. It's not in the presents wrapped up with bows. You won't find it in the tinsel draped through the halls. Though they're pretty to look at, I know. It's in the tiniest things. It's the twinkle in the eyes of a child. It's in the warmth that fills every family room. It's in the way your lips curl up when you smile. On days when the snow falls and when winter wind blows, gather your cherished ones close. Think for a moment how wonderful it feels when you're with the ones you love the most. My wish for you is to remember those days when life happens and drifts you apart. Magic always happens when you open yourself up. When you let others in, that's how it starts. It's a choice you make every day to look for what brings us together. I promise it's as easy as looking with new eyes, and on that day you'll see Christmas can't be forever. That's what the snowman knows. His wish is for everyone to know it too. It's always Christmas for those with open hearts. The magic is in you, Mitch. Now I've got a small story here. Grandma's Still Alive. I Better Bring Her Home for Christmas by Harry Hogg. I invite Grandma at Christmas time when I'm told she's still alive. Oh, now come on, smile at least. You know I'm an old curmudgeon. It's not a pretty picture. Grandma's 90 years and three, razor thin, and worse, she hasn't put her teeth in. She loves the Christmas holidays, Christmas carols at the door, nativity, baby Jesus, and Amazon's fast delivery. I don't like her Christmas sweaters, sparkling reindeers on saggy breasts, blinking lights, pearl-knit snow, but they do brighten up the nights. She's telling the world at Christmas to be joyful, thankful, and frisky, and that's all fine until she drinks my whiskey. Grandma's lived a really long time. I hope it never ends. I'll suffer the crimson cardigans, blinking lights, because I'm her favorite grandson. And now I have, I'm going to close it up. I have this poem that I got. And it's entitled, Twas the Night Before Yuletide. Now, it's not the one that you guys remember from the famous book. This one's pagan. And as I said, I got it off a pagan Facebook group. Twas the night before Yuletide, and all through the glen, not a creature was stirring, not a fox, not a hen. A mantle of snow shone brightly at night as it lay on the ground, reflecting moonlight. The fairies were nestled all snug in their trees, unmindful of flurries and a chilly north breeze. The elves and the gnomes were down in their burrows, sleeping like babes in their soft earthen furrows. When, lo, the earth moved with a thunderous quake, causing chairs to fall over and dishes to break. 
The little folks scramble to get on their feet, then race to the river where they usually meet. What happened, they wondered, they questioned, they probed, as they shivered in night clothes, some bare arms, some roped. What caused the earth shudder? What caused her to shiver? They all spoke at once as they stood by the river. Then what to their wondering eyes should appear but a shining gold light in the shape of a sphere? It blinked and it twinkled, it winked like an eye, and it flew straight up and was lost in the sky. Before they could murmur, before they could bustle, there emerged from the crowd with a swish and a rustle, a stately all crone with her hand on a cane, resplendent in green with a flowing white mane. As she passed by them, the old crone's perfume, smelling of meadows and flowers of bloom, made each of the fae folk think of the spring, when the earth wakes from slumber and birds start to sing. My name is Gaia, the old crone proclaimed, in a voice that at once was both wild and tamed. I've come to remind you, for you seem to forget, that Yule is the time of rebirth, and yet. I see no art fires, I hear no music, no bells. The air isn't filled with rich fragrant smells, of baking and roasting and simmering stews, of cider that's mulled or other hot brews. There aren't any children that play in the snow, or houses lit up by candles glow. Have you forgotten, my children, the fun of celebrating the rebirth of the sun? She looked at the fay folk, her eyes going round, as they shuffled their feet and stared at the ground. Then she smiled a smile that brings light to the day. Come, my children, she said, let's play. They gathered the mistletoe, gathered the holly, threw off the drab and drew on the jolly. They lit a big bonfire and they danced and they sang. They brought out the bells and clapped when they rang. They strung lights on the trees and bows oh so merry, in lot colors of cranberry, bayberry, and cherry. They built giant snowmen and adorned them with hats. They surrounded them with snowbirds and snowcats and bats. And just before dawn, at the end of their fest, before they went homeward to seek out their rest, the fay folk they gathered round their favorite oak tree and welcomed the sun neath the tree's finery. They were just reaching home when it suddenly came. The gold light returned like an arrow-shot flame. It lit on the treetop where they could see from afar the golden light spear turned into a star. The old crone just smiled at the beautiful sight. Happy Yuletide, my children, she whispered. Good night. Poem, author, C.C. Williford. So that's all I have for you this week. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. As I said, I try to give you a variety. And this being a couple days before Christmas, I tried to bring you as much as I could for our Christmas shows. I hope you enjoyed it. So let me get a little advertising out of the way, and then I'll let you enjoy your holiday. This once-a-week podcast is available to listen to on nearly every podcast platform out there, and now on YouTube. Subscriptions are still free, but I do have a donations tab on the rss.com webpage and on my website at www.cronthebeha.com. I appreciate any support for my efforts to bring these stories and poems to you. Disclosure for everyone. In order to read the complete stories and poems, you'll need to sign up for a subscription of Medium. If I see a link by the author on one of the stories to allow everyone to read it, I'll let you know, and that'll be in the newsletters. Until next week, slantia. Kora Mahogat, thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll return again for another episode of Crown of Bay Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Search for Crown of Bay Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. 
I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I entertain you today. This is Shauna King. I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Bless you and yours, as well as the cottage you live in. May the roof overhead be well thatched and those inside be well matched. Schlanga foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.